You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Welcome to the Mission Church. Today's online sermon experienced audio difficulties toward the beginning of the message. We pick up with Pastor Dave's message, Understanding the Great Commission, Part 3. In Acts chapter 2, Peter and the apostles are waiting for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Peter stands up among the other disciples and gives a three-part message. Pastor Dave picks up with Peter's sermon today in Acts chapter 2. Enjoy. But this is God's will. He wants to partner with us. And he doesn't need our ability. He just needs our availability. He's got all power and all authority to do his work. And he just says, hey, let me use you. Why? Because this is what I created you for. I want to do life with you. And so we go into the world and we start working and he empowers us to do it. And so that's what happens. They're in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them just as Jesus promised. And it's miraculous. And there's 120 disciples in Jerusalem waiting. And uh, again, the Holy Spirit comes just like Jesus promised and as the Holy Spirit comes upon that group of 120 believers the church is born so awesome and on that day the church was born and people were in awe of God's power and of God's grace and of God's wonder and they were just blown away and there were others who were who were not believers they were skeptics they they were naysayers and they came along and they said oh look at you guys you're ridiculous are you guys drunk and Peter gets offended by that are you kidding me drunk Men and brethren, we are not drunk as you suppose, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he stands up and he just starts teaching the Bible. And he teaches from Joel chapter 2. And here's what he does. He gives a three-point sermon. And his first point is this. This is the biblical basis for the Holy Spirit that you see coming upon the church right now. This is the biblical basis for it. And he gives a biblical basis from Joel chapter 2 of the promise of the Holy Spirit coming on the church just like Jesus said it would. And uh, here we see the very first sermon of the church is expositional preaching. Peter is not preaching and with uh, speaking in tongues or with any miracles or anything else. He's just simply teaching the Bible verse by verse under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he tells him, that's my first point, this gift of the Holy Spirit, it was spoken by the prophet Joel, just like the Bible said. He says, my second point is going to be bad news for you guys. This Jesus that you crucified, he's not dead. As a matter of fact, he's very much alive. As a matter of fact, he's the same guy doing all this work that you see here. And what does he do? He gives a biblical basis for the resurrection of Jesus Christ through Psalm 16. He teaches the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, on the first sermon of the church. And he says, hey, if you didn't like my second point, my third point is going to be even more painful for you. Uh, This same Jesus whom you crucified... He is both Lord and Christ. Or in other words, this same Jesus who you crucified, he is both Yahweh God and he is the promised Messiah. And you crucified him. And they hear that, and uh, he tells them, yeah, he's now ascended up into heaven. He's sitting at the throne of God, and he is the the king of kings. He's going to stay on the throne until he tramples all enemies under his feet, and then he's going to come back and return, and he gives them the biblical basis for all this, teaching expositionally from the Bible from Psalm 110. 
And so again, I'm going to say it again. The first sermon in the Bible, there were no, I mean, the first church meeting in the Bible, uh, the first sermon in the, I can't even talk. The first sermon in the church, there was no speaking in tongues. There were no miracles. There was just expositional Bible teaching. And uh, look how he finishes his sermon. He gives this three-point sermon, and look how he finishes it. This is in Acts chapter 2, on your screens. Let me hear you read this, one thundering voice. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Does that sound like a seeker-friendly message? No. No. Hey, this Jesus whom you crucified is both God and Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, And then Peter sits down. That's the end of a sermon. No big emotional plea, no hype, no manipulation, no smoke, no fog machine, no lasers. Uh, That's his message. And now look at this. Open up Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick it up here where we start our our reading today. Verse 37. If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. Acts 2.37. Acts 2 verse 37. Look what happens. Now, when they heard this, they were what? Say it out loud. Cut to the heart. Underline that. Who's they? Who's they? The ones who crucified Jesus. Uh, The ones who were against Jesus, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We have sinned against God. What do we do now? They were just cut to the heart. And look what Peter tells him. Then Peter said to them, that's those who had killed Jesus. Uh, Their question, what shall we do? I want you now to circle the verbs of what they shall do. The first one, what is it? First verb. Repent. Circle that. Repent. And let every one of you look at the next thing they should do. Circle it. Be baptized. In the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And the next verb, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Circle that. So he tells them you should repent. You should be baptized and you should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 39. I love verse 39. For the promise... This promise, what promise? The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit that he just taught about in Joel chapter 2. That he just taught that this is what Jesus promised, right? This promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. Or in other words, to your grandchildren, to your great generation, and all the way to our generation and even to the generation after us. This promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is to who? It's to us. It's to us. As many as the Lord our God will call. Verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to to them, to the church. Amazing. 3,000 souls added to the church. Who were those 3,000 that were added to the church? They were the murderers of Jesus. Can you say incredible grace? Can you be, I mean, does that not just blow you away? This Jesus whom you crucified is both God and the Messiah. Oh my gosh, what do we do? Well, you repent and you get baptized and he'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the murderers against Jesus were saved. I want you to know something. You might be here this morning. And you might be a pretty wicked person. You might be a prostitute. You might be a gambler. 
You might be a drug addict. You might have a sex addiction. You might have a pride issue. You might have an anger issue. You might be a big mess. You might have left the back door of the armed vehicle open as you drive down the freeway. <laughs> but here's what I want you to know. Jesus wants to save you. And Jesus wants to forgive you. And Jesus wants the burden of all your sin lifted from your shoulders. And Jesus wants to heal you of your faults and addictions and your perversions. And he wants to make you a child of God. Oh, the incredible grace of Jesus Christ. This is why he went to the cross. And you say, I don't understand. Why would he forgive those people? Here's why. Because he loves them. And that was why he even came to go to the cross in the first place. It is his will to bring your redemption. Amazing. By the way, what was the number of the people that were added to the church? 3,000. Uh, not a random number, by the way. Again, we see God's sovereignty on display. For something else happened, at the birth of the church, there were 3,000 that were saved. There was another birth of something where there was a number 3,000 in the Bible. At the Mosaic Covenant. At the birth of the Mosaic Covenant. The Ten Commandments, in other words. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he calls Moses up onto the mountain for how many days? 40 days. There we are again. And there, 40 days up in the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments. Moses then comes down from the mountain, and what does he find? All of God's people are naked, worshiping a golden calf, drinking, partying, drunkenness, wild living, breaking all of the Ten Commandments, and Moses throws them down symbolically, and they shatter to a million pieces. You've broken all of these commandments before you've even received them. Welcome to the picture of man's nature, by the way. And then God does something very interesting. He says, Moses, draw a line in the sand. So Moses draws a line in the sand. And here's what God says. Who's ever on my side, stand on this side. Come over to Moses. And who's ever not on my side, stand on that side. Who could come over and stand on this side? Who could come? Anybody. You might have just been involved in wicked activity. As a matter of fact, Aaron, the creator of the golden calf, he says, Oy vey, what have I done? And he says, I want to stand over here. And God forgives him. But there were 3,000 who chose not to come over the line and to stand firm in their rebellion. And God wiped them out. On the giving of the law, 3,000 died. On the birth of the church, 3,000 were saved. On the giving of the law, 3,000 went to hell. On the giving of the birth of the church, 3,000 went to heaven. Oh, the manifold grace of God. And here we see uh, uh, just this amazing truth. Look at that. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Look at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. Uh, say those two, two words for me. Continued steadfastly. Say it again like you really mean it. They continued steadfastly in some things. Not in one thing, in some things, right? I want you to see this. They continued steadfastly, circle this, in the apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly, circle this, in fellowship. They continued steadfastly, circle this, in breaking of bread. And they continued steadfastly, circle it, what is it? Prayer. In prayer. 
And because of that, because of it, look at this. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles and the church. Uh, not right then and there, but over time. Uh, what kind of signs? What kind of wonders? Well, people with spiritual blindness saw truth. People with addictions got healed. People who were narcissists became selfless. People who were hell-bent on destruction became disciples of Jesus Christ. Many incredible signs were done. Uh, look at how incredible. Do you see what happened here? What happened? The Holy Spirit empowered Peter to make disciples in a very natural way. He just simply taught sinners about Jesus from the Bible. No tongues, no miracles, no laser shows, and the result, 3,000 were added to the church. 3,000 got saved. They were convicted of their sins against Jesus. They repented, and Jesus saved them and made them disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question, church. Who did this powerful work? Was it Peter? Was it Peter, the one who opens his mouth only to put in his foot? Was it Peter who, who says... Uh, Lord, even though all deny you, all never deny you? Was it cock-a-doodle-doo, Peter? <laughs> Was it get behind me, Satan, Peter? Was it I'm quitting ministry and going back to my fishing business, Peter? Was it that Peter who did the work? No, it was not that Peter who did the work. Peter could have never done this on his own. This was Peter and the Holy Spirit working together. This is God's will. And this is God's way. Peter and the Holy Spirit working together to make what? Disciples of all ethnos. And Christian, I want you to know the Holy Spirit will do the exact same thing for you and for me as we step out in faith to make disciples of Jesus. Jesus has called us to make us called us to make disciples and Jesus promised. He says, "Listen, the gift is to you and to your children and to those who are far off. This the gift is to all people. You go out and make disciples and you will see my power come upon you to do the work that only I can do and you will be in awe many of you are here today and you go you know I've never really experienced the Holy Spirit doing a work in my life can I tell you something it's because you're not making disciples Step out in faith and start telling people about Jesus, whatever it is you know about him. We looked at this two weeks ago. The woman at the well, all she knew was, come and meet a man who knew everything about me. And she went and told people that, and the Holy Spirit used her and empowered her life to, to make disciples. He'll do the same for you. And the more you start making disciples, the more he'll pour into you, and you'll experience the Holy Spirit's power working in your life. It's incredible. The promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off. Step out in faith. Let God use you. God partnered with Peter. He inspired his mind. He gave them the words to speak. It was natural. It, was, it wasn't any big trick or anything else. He just stood up and told him, spoke what was on his heart. And he will do, he will do the exact same thing with you. This is Jesus' work. This is the Holy Spirit's work. Now, if we are going to make disciples, we need to know the seven practices of a disciple. And we just read them. I want to unpack them with you in more detail. Uh, these are the seven practices of a disciple of Jesus Christ. The first one, there it was. I asked you to circle it. What was it? Did you circle it? What was it? Repent. Repent. Here's the question. Repent of what? Yes, it is true. The first practice of a disciple of Jesus Christ is repentance. But repenting of what? Let me hear from you. Sin. Sin. Not, not too broad. I want a more specific answer. Repent of what? Our 
We said, I don't know. What are you talking about? I thought it was sin. It's not sin. It's our sin against God. Big difference. We repent of our sin against God. You see, otherwise, we, we say things like, well, yeah, I know I have an anger problem. I'm not as good as I should be. That's not repenting against our sin against God. That's just repenting of being messed up. Oh, I re repent of my lust. Yeah, I know, I know. I probably shouldn't have done that. I'll try to be better. That is not repentance. Repentance is repenting of our sin against God. It's realizing that we've offended our creator. It's realizing that we've gone against him. It's realizing it's making our sin the reality of what it is. It's not, oh, well, we're not, a, I just, I'll try better. I'll try to be a better person. No, 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 no. It's sin against your creator. And that is the beginning of discipleship. You can go around your whole life trying to be a better person. That does not make you right with God. You might even be really good at it. Like you're a philanthropist. You're really kind. You're really gentle. Hey, those are great things. Don't get me wrong. But it does not make you right with God. Do you know why you have feelings? Do you know why you have a heart that cares and wants to be cared for? Because you were made in the image of your creator. And your creator has those kind of emotions. And when you sin against a loved one, what that loved one wants is to be acknowledged that you have broken their heart. And what we have to repent of is not just sin, but our sin, what? against God big difference big difference that's what David meant in Psalm 51 when he said Lord against you and you alone have I sinned Lord I realize I've wronged you first and foremost above all else uh, so important the second thing that we repent of we have to repent of two things as a disciple of Jesus number one our sin number two our rebellion against Jesus lordship in our lives our rebellion against Jesus lordship in our lives what's that yeah uh, it's realizing that you know what I've pretty much done what I think is right and I've pretty much done things my own way and I realize I'm sinning against you God I know it's an incredible epiphany but this is not your universe nor is it your world nor is it your church nor is it your life it belongs to God all, the Colossians says of Jesus all things were made by him and all things were made what Bible scholar for him and that means all things are to be under his lordship and the moment that we recognize that life changes man it gets good the moment that a person repents they have remission of their, of their sins uh, they're born again into a glorious new creation they become a disciple of Jesus Christ repenting of our sin is an awakening experience it's a change it's 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 so powerful in our life. I want you to know repentance of sin does not mean perfection from sinning. Big difference. Have some freedom here. Repentance of sin does not mean perfection from sinning. Here's what it does mean. It means that we turn away from the sin that we once turned to. It means that we're grieved by the behaviors that we once enjoyed. It means that we repent and we change 
our attitude from what we once thought to a new attitude. We change our action from one action to a new action. We change our allegiance from one allegiance to a new allegiance. Let me give you an example. I used to think that materialism meant success. And so I didn't think there was anything wrong with materialism. I thought it just meant and showed success. But I repented. I now see materialism as idolatry. Okay? I had a change of view. I had a change of perception. I used to think that pride was a, a picture of confidence and success. And, excuse me, confidence and strength. My pride. I mean, just you know, stand up for, yeah, just your way, right? That was confidence and strength. Now I see pride as weakness and selfish insecurity. I've repented. I used to see self-righteousness and hyper-religiosity as spiritual maturity. But I repented. And I now see humility and brokenness as spiritual maturity. I repented. And this is what it means to make Jesus the Lord of our life. It means it doesn't matter what I think of something. I need to know what he thinks of something. It's living in his universe instead of my universe. Now, may we not fool ourselves. Know this. If there is no repentance of sin in a person's life, then there is no salvation either. We talk about some people say, yeah, I think they're a believer. But there's no repentance of sin. I want you to know there's no salvation. Uh, that's just what the Bible teaches. If a person doesn't repent of their sin, they simply do not know Jesus, no matter how often they claim otherwise. And that is not my opinion. That is scripture. First John chapter three lays this out very clearly on your screens. Let's read it together. One voice. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. Uh, let me paraphrase this for you. Let no one deceive you saying that they're a Christian when they're not. If they're not practicing righteousness, they're not a Christian. Uh, look at what it says, verse 8. He, read with me. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. So someone who sins is of the devil. We go, uh-oh, I've got a problem. Why? Because I sin. How many of you sin? Yeah, we all sin. You're sinning if you don't raise your hand. <laughs> we all sin. So what does this mean? He who sins is of the devil. For one thing, I want you to know, John says we all sin too. Because in chapter 1, verse 8 of John, he says this. If we say that we haven't sinned or that we don't sin, we make God a liar and his truth is not in us. But if we will simply confess his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. So he's not changing his mind here. What does he mean then when he says he who sins is of the devil. Well, we have to take it in context worth verse 7. You could, pair, you could put it, you could phrase it this way. He who continues practicing sin is of the devil. Because that's what the devil's been doing from the beginning of time. Let's go on, read the rest of the verse. It's a continual practice of sin. Look at this, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he's been born of God. Let's stop there. Whoever's been born again, whoever's a Christian, does not sin. Or in other words, does not continue practicing sin. Why? Because his seed, capital H, God's seed, the Holy Spirit, remains in him. And he cannot continue practicing sin because he's been born of God. If you are a Christian, when you sin, the Holy Spirit will come and go, Dave, what are you doing? 
and I'll have a conviction in my heart. And I'll go, oh, I know, Lord, I'm so sorry, I messed up again, and I'll repent. And, and he'll say, you're forgiven, now walk with me. And notice what he says, I can't continue sinning. I just can't do it. I'll be convicted. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, God's seed, remains in me. And I can't just continue practicing sin because I've been born of God. And now, read with me verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. How's that? Yeah, the children of God cannot just continue practicing sin. They'll be bothered from the inside. And they'll repent. But the people who aren't born again, they can continue practicing sin, no problem. Bernie Madoff did his scam for decades. Didn't bother him till he got caught at the end. Yeah, that's not repentance, right? Uh, the Christian can't continue practicing sin. The unbeliever can. And so here we see this, 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 this great truth. Uh, now, be of good courage. Repentance is not sinlessness. Right? It's just not continuing practicing sin. Let me give you some examples. Even though I know pride is wrong, and even though I despise pride, sometimes I get tempted by the lure of pride to be prideful. And so I walk into a room and I try to impress people. And as when I do, the Holy Spirit comes along and goes, Dave, what are you doing? Why are you trying to make yourself look good? Why are you trying to justify yourself? Why are you trying to self humiliate? Do you want your righteousness, Dave, or do you want my righteousness? And the moment I hear that, guess what I do? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. And I start walking humbly, right? I repent. Um, uh, the grace of Jesus. When we stumble in sin is astonishing. There's a reason that songs are written about amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Uh, because his mercies and his grace are new morning by morning and day by day. And even though I continue to stumble in sin, I am never cast down because his mercy and his grace flows into my life. And there's no conviction, uh, excuse me, there's no condemnation when I sin. He convicts me of my sin. I say, Lord, I'm sorry. And, and he just says, no problem. Now let's walk on the right path. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's the amazing life. Uh, look what Psalm 37 says about it. It's so good. Uh, let me hear you read this. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Let's break that down a bit. The steps of a good man, or in other words, the steps of a child of God are ordered by the Lord. What does that mean? It means he leads, guides, and directs us. In my marriage, he leads me. In my ministry, he leads me. When you go to work, he'll lead you. When you go to the gym, he'll lead you. The steps of the good man are ordered by the Lord. And look at the he. And he delights in his path. The he is capitalized. What does that mean? Who are we talking about? God delights in your path. Even when you go and you do something stupid and you go, Lord, please forgive me. God says, oh, I just delight in his path. Look at Tim. He just messed up and now he's confessing his sin. I just love Tim. Let's get him back on track. And he picks us up and he puts us back. And notice what he says. Even if he falls, he will not be utterly cast down. Why? Because he's so strong in his own ability? No. No, no, no. Because the Lord upholds him with his hand, with his gracious, merciful, tender hand. Hand. Here's what I know. When we realize we blow it, we do things like this. Oh man, I'm such a loser. I'm such a failure. I'll never get it right. And the Holy Spirit says, you're sinning again. Don't think that way. I saved you. You're right. You'll never be righteous. Don't try to be self-righteous. Just bathe in my righteousness and enjoy my grace. And what does that do? Instead of condemning myself, I go, oh Lord, you're so good. And it just makes me want to live for Jesus. That's his wonderful ways. He's amazing. 
Uh, a similar parallel passage is in Proverbs 24. On your screens, look at this. Uh, Proverbs 24, 16. Read with me. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Notice the juxtaposition in Proverbs. That's what Proverbs does all the time. A righteous man will never sin. No, no, no. It's not what it says. Even if a righteous man falls, how many times? Seven, Seven times. Seven is the number of completion. It means like you're going to do it, you know, like it covers all numbers, right? You're going to do it 107,000 million times. But look at this. He will rise again. Why? Because God picks him up, cleans him, washes him off. And even when the rooster crows, God picks you up. But look at the juxtaposition. The wicked, they'll fall and they'll fall by calamity. God won't lead them. God won't direct them. And they will go to hell. And uh, just a, a powerful uh, example of seeing that repentance is not sinlessness, but it's just getting back on track and doing the right thing, allowing J Jesus to give us grace. Um, we're not sinless. Uh, we stumble a lot. Uh, but the difference is Christians do not practice sin. Uh, even if we struggle, we might stumble into it, but we get back on track. And uh, that is the glory of Jesus Christ. So um, we repent of our sin. And uh, we repent of our rebellion against the lordship of Jesus Christ. These are the two things that we have to repent. I want you to know, the Bible knows nothing about a Christian who has Jesus as his Savior and not as his Lord. I hear that sometime in Christian circles. Well, yeah, he's, you know, Jesus is his Savior, just not his Lord. Well, then I don't know if he's his Savior. That's just what the Bible teaches, right? Uh, the Bible knows nothing about that. Lordship means that we're no longer the highest authority in our lives, that, we're, that Jesus is the, the authority of our life. Uh, lordship of Jesus means it doesn't matter how I view things. What matters is I learn from God's word how he views things, and I let it change my paradigm. I let it change my worldview. Uh, this is God's world, not my world. And I want you to know this is a radical concept for most people that somebody else would be the authority in your life beside yourself that what you think is right is right doesn't matter what you think is wrong is wrong doesn't matter you have a higher authority that you submit your life to that is a radical concept to the rest of the world but I tell you what man it is super healthy for the moment that you make Jesus your authority instead of yourself, your entire life instantly gets better. Let me illustrate. Let's say that you're married and you've got two people trying to do life together. And the husband thinks, well, this is the way it should be. And the wife thinks, no, this is the way you should be. Why are you always doing it like this? Oh, yeah, well, why do you do this? And why do you do this? And the moment that that marriage comes under a higher authority, radical blessings begin to come in to that marriage. That marriage becomes significantly better. And it's a awesome, awesome display. And the same thing is true in life. There's a higher authority than, than, than all of us. And we submit to it. And it's true for every area of our Christian life. When we go to work and we realize there's a higher authority than me making money. There's a higher authority than me climbing the corporate ladder. There's a higher authority than everything. It changes the way I do deals. It changes the way I speak to customers. It changes the way I speak to employees. It changes the way at home I speak to my son. I speak to my daughter. I speak to my wife. It changes the way I take out my trash and take out the neighbor's trash. It changes the way I go through life. Because there's authority higher than ourselves. Uh, and so that is the first and the most probably important practice of a disciple of Jesus is repentance. 
of our sin against God and our rebellion against the Lordship of Jesus. The next ones, the next I'm going to go through much quicker. <laughs> By praise the Lord, right? <laughs> the second practice of a disciple of Jesus Christ is baptism. Baptism. Baptism is a picture of something very important in our life. Baptism is an outward reminder of our daily responsibility to die to self-lordship and to live to the lordship of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are all baptized only once, but we practice our baptism how often? Every day. You see, baptism, the picture of it is beautiful. It's a reason we don't sprinkle. Not that God gives a rip how wet you get. He doesn't. But it does ruin his imagery of what he meant it to be. You see, baptism is a picture of your self-life dying. Your lordship dying. Your authority dying and you now resurrecting in the lordship and power of Jesus Christ it's done once on December 12th at both services <laughs> but it's remembered how often every day that's exactly what Jesus taught us look at Luke 9 on your screens uh, let me hear you read this church. Jesus speaking, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Uh, one problem we have with that verse is we think of taking up our cross as... Um, like the cross of Jesus. Like it has nothing to do with our redemption. It has nothing to do with it. It could e just as easily say, uh, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his electric chair. Okay? Uh, what's he saying? You have to die to your worldview. Your backache is not your cross. <laughs> Your financial troubles are not your cross. Your nagging wife is not your cross to bear, right? Uh, wrong, bogus idea, right? Not wrong idea. The lordship of yourself is your cross to kill, right? That's what you're to die to. That you might resurrect in the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to save your life. And if you don't do that, you're going to lose your life. If you do that, you're going to save your marriage. You're going to be a better dad. You're going to have a save your family. You're going to have a, a better sons and daughters. You're going to have a better work environment. You're going to have a better life and you're going to go to heaven. If you don't do that, you're going to ruin your marriage. You're going to ruin your family and you're going to go to hell. Uh, Jesus' words, not mine, right? That's what he's teaching us. And so we have to remember the disciple, excuse me, the, the, the practice of a disciple of Jesus is to practice our baptism daily. The Apostle Paul would say, I die daily, right? Uh, a person cannot say Jesus is Lord if they refuse and reject their baptism. I'm not going to get baptized. I don't need to get baptized. Well, then you're the Lord of your life. And what you're doing on a big picture, you're also doing daily. You're deciding what's right and wrong. Doesn't work that way. Um, so we have to get baptized. Uh, there are only two sacraments in the church, right? What are the two sacraments, Bible scholars? Baptism and communion. Uh, and it's something that we practice all the time. So uh, the third one, the third mark of a born-again disciple of Jesus is the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Again, he says this promise is to you and to your children afar off. It's to all. Uh, this gift, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it happens the moment a person is born again. God's Holy Spirit starts indwelling inside of us, and he never leaves us. 
uh, until he takes us up into heaven. Ephesians 4 tells us, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of your redemption. (laughs) You cannot lose your salvation if you are in Jesus Christ. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of your salvation. So the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. We looked at this in depth last week, right? He's leading and guiding and directing us into all truth. Jesus said the Holy Spirit won't speak of himself. He's just going to take the things that I taught you, Jesus said, and he's going to bring them to remembrance. And so I'm coming down the stairs, and I'm a little hot. I'm a little upset, and I start to speak, and the Holy Spirit says, Hey, hey, is that how you're going to talk to your wife? And he leads, guides, and directs me into all truth. This is his work in our life, and it's a tremendous gift. And and a a born-again disciple of Jesus allows the Holy Spirit to lead him. He freely gives us uh, the Spirit as a gift, and he reminds us of all of Jesus' teachings and commands. There's a second really cool thing that the Holy Spirit does. Do you know what it is? Not only does he lead, guide, and direct us in everyday life, but he also gives us spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Every believer has spiritual gifts. Guess who that means? If you're a believer in Jesus, what does that mean? It means you have spiritual gifts. I want you to pat your chest. I want you to pat your heart. And I want you to say, I have spiritual gifts. Angie's there going, I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that. I want you to say it and believe it. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to say it in your heart and believe it. Jesus has given me spiritual gifts. What are they? Hey, they're abilities. They're unique gifts that are only for you, unique to you, uh, that will allow you to do something profound. What will they allow you to do? Make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what your gifts are for, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's incredible. Uh, you have spiritual gifts. They, uh, they, they, they allow you to love and to serve and to build just like Jesus did. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, on your screens, let me hear you read this. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but is the same God who works in all. Notice that. All kinds of gifts, diversities of gifts. I love the diversity of God's creation. As I mentioned, some flowers are brilliantly red, some are white, some blossom in the desert, some blossom in the rainforest. How does that work? I don't know. They're the diversity of God. But it's the same God, it's the same Spirit making all these things. And there's differences of ministries. Some are pouring coffee. Some are handing out bagels. Some are greeting in the parking lot. Some are just giving hugs and loving. Some are teaching the Bible. Some are singing brilliant songs. All of them are different activities, but it's the same God working in all of us. And let's go on, the rest of the verse. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Hey, the fact that you like to decorate so that the disciples can come in and see, wow, this is a great place to be. Uh, That was the manifestation of the Spirit. And that was given to each one for the profit of all. The fact that you can teach, that was for... And here's something really cool about God's spiritual gifts. Uh, They're so different than human gifts. Christmas is coming up. Uh, My son Jordan, front row. Taylor is beautiful bride in the front row. Uh, Taylor, this dress is for you. Merry Christmas. Jordan, this shirt is for you. Merry Christmas. And when I give them that gift, who's that gift for? It's for them. God does things entirely different. God says, Jordan, here's a shirt. It's for all of you. Taylor, here's a gift. It's not for you. It's for all of you. 
Here's the gift of beautiful singing. It's not so you can get up here and go, aren't I the amazing singer? (laughs) No, no, no. It's to lead all of us in worship. These are how God gives gifts. And he gives each one a gift. You have a gift. And church, can I tell you something? Listen to me. Say it again with me. I have a spiritual gift. And can I tell you something? You are going to absolutely love using it. It is going to thrill you. It is going to fill you. It is going to fill your heart to joy. Uh, You have spiritual gifts. And it's really cool how God designed it. Can I tell you this? None of you have all of the gifts. You only have some of the gifts. But collectively, together, as one body, we have what? All of the gifts. There is only one person ever who had all of the spiritual gifts. You know who it was? Jesus. In John chapter 3, the Bible says, For the Holy Spirit was given to him without measure. Everyone else, all other believers, given with measure. We have an earnest of the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. Until, you know, right? And so what does that mean? It means, yeah, uh, Isaac, you have a gift, but you also have a lot of weaknesses. David, you have a gift, but you also have a lot of weaknesses. And you know what that means? It means I need Isaac's gift. And it means Isaac needs my gift. And when I come into the body of Christ, what do I find? All of my gifts are need. Excuse me. All of my gifts are met. Uh, Welcome to open table. Come have Thanksgiving, right? Uh, All all our needs are met when we come together. And so uh, super cool uh, how that works. Uh, The fourth practice of a born-again disciple of Jesus is they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What is the apostles' doctrine? Let me hear from you. Who said that? It's the Bible. It's the T. Te- oh, it's it's Jean in the back. She was here at the first service. She's. Re- <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just. I'm just teasing. I'm only teasing. Uh, how quickly I divert. Uh, we continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What is that? That's Bible teaching. We, we, we continue steadfastly in it. Continue steadfastly. That means we're in it all the time. What does that mean? It means we're studying the word. We study it privately. We study it with gifted teachers. We study it in small groups. We study it all the time. Why? Because we cannot be healthy disciples of Jesus without studying God's word. It's simply not possible. Paul said it this way in Romans 10:17 he said faith comes by understanding and understanding comes by God's word in other words you cannot have faith apart from God's word it's not possible God told Joshua when he was commanding Joshua to lead uh, God's people he said listen This book of the law, the Bible, it shall not depart out of your mouth. You should meditate in it day and night that you might learn to do according to all that is written in it. And when you do that, then you will have good success. Then you will, then you're going to prosper in all you do. But you've got to know my word. And so a practice of a disciple of Jesus is he continues steadfastly in the apostles doctrine. Always, uh, discipleship always centers first on Bible study. Ezra, the great Bible teacher, said, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's what illuminates my journey so I know how to walk properly. Uh, And this is why we are always teaching the Bible, and this is why we are always raising up Bible teachers. I want you to know, if you have the desire to teach the Bible, you probably have the spiritual gift of teaching. Exercise it. Grow in it. Start using it. 
Do a, a Bible study at your house with others, with your family. With, do a Bible study at work. Start exercising your gift. Talk to us about it. Let us help you grow in it. Uh, notice it says they continued steadfastly. What, what does that mean? It means they devoted themselves entirely. It means they committed themselves to it. It means it was an ongoing, willful, purposeful activity. Do you know what we continue steadfastly in? We continue steadfastly in eating. We never seem to forget. But a disciple of Jesus continues steadfastly in Bible study, right? And eating. Um, and uh, so the fifth one, uh, and we're almost there. Uh, the fifth practice of a born-again disciple of Jesus is they continue steadfastly in fellowship. In fellowship. The word fellowship there uh, that you circled, it, in the Greek, it is koinonia. And it means more than just gathering together. It means close relationships. It means sharing with each other. It means doing life together. It means being real with people. It means honestly opening up, being transparent. I want you to know something, and I want your full attention for a moment. I want you to really hear this. Some people think they do not need to belong to one church. They think they can just bounce around from church to church and listen to sermons by podcast and do church online. And I'm just, you know, I'm fine. I go here one week. I go here another week. Some weeks I don't go. I just listen online. But it's all good. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? Bogus thinking. You could not be more wrong. For all of you tuning in online, I am so thankful you are. And there is 1% of you that because of health reasons, you need to protect yourself and you shouldn't be in corporate fellowship. Or because you're caring for someone, uh, that uh, you shouldn't be in corporate fellowship. But that is 1% of you. The rest of you need to get your butts back in church. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And you can't just go around listening to different podcasts. Why? Because you are part of a body. And you have spiritual gifts that God has poured into you. And he wants you to experience his spirit coming upon you to use those gifts to serve others. And you cannot do that bouncing from church to church to church to church. You need to be plugged in and you need to be serving. If you are not a regular member of a church, you are out of God's will. You are lacking fellowship and it is not healthy. A disciple of Jesus Christ continues in fellowship in a church body. They serve others. They pray for others. They use their spiritual gifts to build people. And it is a healthy thing to do. And if you want to be a disciple of Jesus... It, you, you, there's no other way about it. I love our young adults ministry here. They are always doing life together. It is so cool. I love uh, in our, our mission groups. They're always doing meals and hanging. They're enjoying Queen Aenea together. They're praying for each other and building each other up. I love that the Mission Church men's softball team just won the championships in Carlsbad this week. <laughs> Because guys are hanging together, right? And I love that. When celebrations come, we rejoice together because we're in fellowship. When hardships come, we come together and we help each other. We counsel each other. We support each other. And it's so cool to see. And so we have to be in fellowship. The sixth one is we continue steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Or in other words, the communion table. We continue steadfastly at the communion table. Why? Why? Again, there are only two sacraments that Jesus ordained. We have to practice our baptism daily. And we practice coming to communion on a regular basis. Why? Here's why. Because it brings unity into our life. 
It brings unity. You see, what happens when we're in a church this size is here's what happens. Well, Tim begins to bug me because he stepped on my toes a little bit. And I begin to bug Tim because once again, we're five minutes over right now, pastor. (laughs) You do this every Sunday. (laughs) And we begin to step on each other's toes. And it begins to rub. Until we come to the foot of the cross. And I realize Tim's blunder is nothing compared to my blunder. You see, at the foot of the cross, there is nobody rich. At the foot of the cross, there is nobody wise. At the foot of the cross, there is nobody righteous. At the foot of the cross, there is nobody moral. At the foot of the cross, there is nobody generous. At the foot of the cross, there is nobody loving. When we look at how Jesus does it, we are painfully aware that all of us have sinned and are currently falling short of the glory of God. And that gives me tremendous compassion on my brother. And it allows us to dwell together in unity. And a disciple of Jesus Christ regularly continues steadfastly in communion, bringing ourselves to the foot of the cross remembering what Jesus did for us the final uh, seventh practice of a disciple of Jesus Christ is uh, we continue steadfastly in prayer and I know it's late but let, let your heart hear this okay prayer is powerful and you have the wrong idea of what kind of power I mean Prayer is powerful because it gets my eyes off of my kingdom and gets my eyes onto the real kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. That is the power of prayer. Prayer gets my eyes off of my failures and mistakes and onto Jesus' perfection and righteousness and grace so that I can live free. Prayer changes my whole entire world you see a healthy disciple of jesus begins every day in what prayer and how does it look it looks like this jesus i have a meeting at eight o'clock this morning and in that meeting allison is there and allison bugs the snot out of me So, Lord, in this meeting, help me not to get irritated with Allison. Instead, help me to disciple Allison. And I get my eyes off of my kingdom onto his kingdom, and I go into that meeting entirely different. Lord, I have this meeting at 8 o'clock, and instead of me taking the credit and trying to show everybody how impressive I am, Lord, help me to build everyone on the team. And now God promotes me as a bigger leader because I'm a builder of people. And Lord, at 10 o'clock, I have a meeting with this really important client. And there's this one problem causing us from closing the deal. Help me not to lie my way around that because I know what you value. Help me to do it your way, Lord, at that meeting at 10 o'clock. And this is what a disciple does. They continue in prayer. And at the end of the day, the man drives home and he says, Lord, I'm exhausted. But I know my most important ministry is now before me. Help me come home and love my wife and listen to her and actually talk with her instead of just grunting and to actually build my kids. And it changes my perception. And that is the power of prayer. And these are the disciplines that will transform our world. Prayer is how we get ourselves in step with Jesus. It's how we live for more than just what we should eat, drink, or wear. It's how we live for things that really matter in life. And I know this. There are many of you here who are bored with your prayer life or just you've given up on your prayer life. Here's what I know about you. In your prayer life... 
if you listen to your own prayers, here's what you're doing. You're telling Jesus what to do. God, I need you to bless me in this, and would you please bless so-and-so, they're sick, and would you please feed the people in Africa, and would you please do this, and please do that, and you're telling Jesus what to do. No wonder your prayer life is boring. God does not need you to tell him what to do. <laughs> you want to have a powerful prayer life? Start allowing God's word tell you what to do at your 8 o'clock meeting. Start letting God's word tell you what to do with your difficult neighbor. And you will have a powerful prayer life. And you'll experience God working in your life. Will you stand with me? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.